We're now recording. So we're going to have a recording of this, and we have a YouTube page now that is accessible from our website as well. So the recording will be available there, uh, as well as the recordings of the previous programs. Our website is, as you can see here, www.nursinghome411.org. Uh, and we'll repeat all that at the end as well. So again, I don't want people to get bogged down with uh, there is a lot to cover today, uh, but I really want to give you a heads up on some things that I've learned that I think are important in the new regulations that can help us improve care, improve quality of life, and support our advocacy for, um, for, for good resident care. So thank you. And we're going to get started now. There we go. Uh, so a little bit about us. I'm going to start with the same introduction. Um, I know for those of you, uh, excuse me, for those of you who have joined us in the past, uh, you have heard this before, but I just want to let everyone know that we are a nonprofit organization. The Long-Term Care Community Coalition has been around for close to 30 years as a nonprofit organization. We are entirely dedicated to improving resident care and quality of life. Um, we work closely with ombudsmen, with families, and with residents. And we do mostly systemic advocacy. So uh, my work is really focused on the laws and the regulations, how well they're being implemented. And we hear about a lot of issues from working with families, working with residents, working with the Amazon programs, working with Alzheimer's Associations and the Center for Independence of the Disabled, uh, Coalition for Institutionalized Aging and Disabled, Caring Kind New York, uh, and all of the work that you do is so important in terms of helping us to understand and try to address what's going on in a systemic way. Uh, one reason why I mention that is because we are very small, so we don't have a lot of capacity to do individual advocacy, but this kind of program has enabled us to, I hope, um, plug in effectively with the work that many of you are doing. I joined the Long-Term Care Coalition in 2002, so I'll be celebrating my 15th anniversary this year, and I've been the executive director since 2005. So what are we talking about today? I'm going to start again, uh, as I usually do, with a brief background on the nursing home system, just to give you a framework of what the laws and the regulatory standards are, and then our focus today will be on three areas of residence rights that are very much related, which is why I wanted to put them in one program. One is the right to a safe living environment. The second is the right to form and have resident and family councils. And lastly, we'll spend a lot of time on this, is the right to have your grievances heard and responded to. Grievances is the word used by the federal government talking about complaints. Uh, and this is, of course, uh, as, as I'm sure many of you know and as I know very well, um, you know, not having one's complaints heard is a serious problem. And the regulations, the new regulations that came out last year have, I think, done sub made some substantial improvements so that there is much more of a structure in place so that people will have their complaints heard and responded to in an effective way. I just wanted to also start off by saying, um, you see here in the blue box, that it's important for us all to remember that the rights center on the resident. However, when a resident either gives decision-making authority to someone else, a family member or a friend or a professional, or if that individual lacks capacity, uh, the resident lacks capacity, excuse me, it's the individual with, 
with decision-making authority, he or she takes the place of the resident in respect to exercising all of the rights that we talk about on the resident's behalf and in the resident's best interest. So that's really important because too often I'll hear from family members that they feel or friends who are have been authorized by a resident to uh, advocate for her and that person is shut out, shut out from care planning, shut out from decision making, shut out from anything that's going on in terms or many things that are going on in terms of that resident's care. So it's really important that uh, we do keep in mind it is all centered on the resident. It's everything that we do and certainly supposed to be everything that the nursing home does, um, but that when the resident has signed capacity or doesn't have capacity, um, you know, authority, excuse me, to do that, that that person takes on that role and has those rights. I just wanted to also put in a, you know, something, a brief discussion about why are we talking about this today. Uh, as many of you know, nursing homes are currently undergoing the biggest changes in quality of care and quality of life requirements in over 25 years. We'll talk a little bit more about that. But these standards are going to affect every aspect of nursing home care. So as I mentioned at the start, I think it's really important that we be knowledgeable, that we have access to knowledge and to tools, and that we prepare to know what our rights are as these changes are implemented and in the years going forward. So this is actually a picture of my Aunt Hilda, who was in a nursing home in Suffolk County, Long Island. Uh, she's since passed away. But I wanted to also just show you, you know, we have residents' rights are, as I said before, they're really the foundation. They're, they're, they're the big kahuna, but they're founded on the law, they're founded on the regulation, and they're founded on the oversight. That's what makes the residents' rights possible. And then lastly, that our knowledge gives us the power. Our knowledge of those things gives us the power to effectuate them. In a nutshell, the nursing home system, what I want to do here is to just give you all a framework for what we're talking about and why. So virtually every nursing home in the United States participates in Medicaid or Medicare. That basically means that they're licensed by the federal government, and if they accept a dollar or more in either Medicaid or Medicare funds, they are said to participate in Medicaid or Medicare. We have um, over 600 nursing homes in New York State, over 15,000 across the country. Virtually all of them participate in Medicaid and are Medicare and are therefore subject to the standards that we talk about in all of our programs. So in order to participate in Medicaid or Medicare, a facility agrees to meet the standards provided for in the nursing home reform law. Now states can have additional protections, but a state cannot have less protections. So two good examples I think are one, many states now, two thirds of the states have approximately, uh, have minimum staffing standards. That's not a requirement. The federal law does not, or federal regulation does not require a set number of staff per resident per day, but the majority of states now do, but not all of them do. Uh, another good example is many states now require that there be an RN in a facility 24 hours a day, seven days a week, but that's not a federal requirement. Uh, importantly, all the protections that we talk about in this presentation and all the work that we do at LTCCC and the other advocates do, they apply to 
all residents in the facility. There's no discrimination. So whether you're in there for Medicare, whether you're in there for Medicaid, whether you're paying out of pocket, whether you have insurance, all the rights that we talk about apply to you. It does not matter. Um, and then the federal agency, CMS, that's, they contract with the State Department of Health to ensure that residents are protected and receive the services they need. So we'll talk about this more, but CMS essentially pays for the care, and they also, through the states, and then they also um, contract with the states to ensure that the facilities meet those regulations. A little bit more about the reform law. The federal law requires that every nursing home resident is provided the care and quality of life services sufficient to attain and maintain his or her highest practicable physical, emotional, and social well-being. This is something uh, really exceptional. As I mentioned earlier, I've been doing this for just about 15 years now at the coalition. But it's really important, I think, sometimes to step back and say, well, well what does this mean? And I know sometimes I talk to people in highest practicable. What does that mean? And that means that the facility has to provide the services, has to have enough staffing, et cetera, to ensure that you are able to that you're able to function at the highest possible level for you. So that doesn't mean you saw my aunt before. It doesn't mean that she came in and the facility was expected to help her jog around the around the block because she wasn't doing that. And she wasn't, she lived to be over 100. Um, you know, that wasn't something that was going to be likely for her, to say the least, uh, at that age. But she was able to walk when she came in. And so she was given occupational therapy a couple times a week so that she could maintain her ability to walk. So that's the kind of thing that we're talking about. The law emphasizes individualized patient-centered care. And that means when you think about the highest practicable and you think about the individualized is that the facilities are required to match what they give to what the individual needs, not what they want to produce based upon their finances, based upon their, their, their physical layout, et cetera. When they take in a resident, this is what they promise to do. These are the minimum standards. So it's different, say, from, for instance, from the automotive industry, where, where Chrysler might say that they are going to have an average output of certain level of, of emissions per year from their cars. That's based upon what the industry does. This is really based upon the customer, the consumer, and what he or she needs. And that, to me, it's just really important to remember. Um, as we'll talk about some of them today, the law lays out specific standards and resident rights um, for good care and to ensure that there's monitoring of both care and quality of life that maximizes resident choice, resident dignity, and resident autonomy, as well as, of course, highest physical, uh, highest practical, excuse me, physical and um, emotional and social well-being. The law passed in 1987. This was um, signed into law by Ronald Reagan. And the regulatory standards came out a few years later in 1991. So what is happening now, for the first time since 1991, the federal regulatory system is being completely revised and updated. And as I mentioned earlier, this is going to affect every aspect of care and quality of life. So I just wanted to briefly show you here why this is so important, is that all the regulations are changing. 
They've all been moved around. There's new language. There are new requirements. For 25 years, we all knew, we being, you know, professionals, including nursing homes, including nursing home surveyors or inspectors, they knew what the rules were and where to find them. Uh, so if I'm looking for, for instance, if I'm a nursing home and I want to see what my requirements are for, for medication management and protecting um, you know, residents to make sure they get the right medicines, I can see exactly that, oh, only this person is allowed to give medicine to a resident. Um, they have, he or she has to be a professional. It can't be a nurse aide, et cetera. All that's changing. So the, the hundreds and hundreds of pages of federal regulation have now all been moved around and many of them have been changed. All the guidelines are changing. The guidelines put it in detail what is expected for each regulatory standard. This is important for you to know, as well as the next, look at the next um, uh, tag is the FTAG system. That's the system used by inspectors to implement the regulations and the guidelines. Those are numbers assigned to each regulatory, um, uh, each, re each regulation, excuse me. So the reason why I wanted to mention this here is because we have had a system that's been in place for 25 years. As I said, when a nursing home uh, needs to know what it's supposed to do in terms of medication management, it can look it up. When a surveyor or inspector comes into a nursing home and she is inspecting to see if they're following the regulations, she knew exactly where they were because they've been there for 25 years. All this is changing. So the reason why it's so important is really twofold. One is that we're hoping that with stronger, you know, with the rules being strengthened, that there'll be better enforcement and hopefully, you know, down the road, better resident care. But at the same time, a concern I've had as an advocate is that with all these changes going on from the regulations to the guidance for implementing the regulations to the F-tags for enforcement, that there's going to be a lot of confusion. So, I, again, um, I know this is a content-heavy uh, presentation, but I really want to just give you a framework of why we're doing this and why it's important, I think, for you all to at least have a sense of what is going on and where you can go for help when you do have questions, is that there's going to be a lot of changes. There might be some confusion. We don't want to see people slip through the cracks. I mean, that, that is really it in a nutshell, is that, you know, we're concerned that there is some confusion as to what, uh, what the rule is and how it's to be enforced. Those rules go to quality of care. They go to really very basic things about safety and about dignity for our residents. So it will be really important for us to be as vigilant as possible. But what I want to do, and I actually added this um, to, to the background um, the other day, because I was thinking, you know, what did I want to let you all know about is, you know, and how we're going to do this, excuse me, is that first we're going to look at the federal language so I want to really show you what exactly nursing homes are being told they must do for their residents. Then at the end of the program, I'm going to summarize some of the important points because, again, there's no reason to worry about memorizing. That's not the point. The point is really just to raise awareness here and then to give you the tools that you can use to 
advocate for these things, to be aware and to advocate for these things in the future. So we are putting together fact sheets. I've done three fact sheets for each of the three different um, standards that we're going to talk about today so that you'll have easy access to find out what is going on uh, and what you need to know in the future. And as I note here at the bottom, everything is available again or will be available after this program at www.nursinghome411.org. Everything is free. Um, I am really happy for any of you to take what you have, put your own name on it, your own organization's name on it if you're working with an organization. Um, if you need copies, let us know. We're happy to send you copies of any of the materials. But uh, my goal is to make sure that this, this information is out there um, as effectively as possible to support resident-centered advocacy. So now we're going to move on to the residents' rights that we're going to talk about today. Again, safe environment uh, first, then resident and family councils, and then we'll talk about grievances. Now, safe environment, just so you know, this is an issue. I think if I remember correctly, it is the most cited problem in nursing homes, is the failure to have uh, to provide a safe environment. So we just did a study uh, last year that looked at enforcement trends, and this is one of the big ones. And it could range from you know, a variety of things. It could be that the water temperatures are too high, that they're, they're scalding, the facility hasn't implemented something, uh, you know, a safety precaution in their our safety um, mechanism in their heating system. It could be that they leave doors open that should be closed um, to safeguard people from wandering, especially people with dementia. It could be a range of things, but it's, you know, when you think about it, obviously we want, we want and we need facilities to provide safety, uh, excuse me, to provide good care and to treat people with dignity, but fundamentally it has to be a safe place to live. If you see, look, there's a little like, um, starburst on the right-hand side. Throughout these um, regulations, anything in orange type is the new regulatory language. So I really wanted to highlight for you the things that have been added because that's, um, you know, that, that's exciting. It's also, you know, part of the point for us doing this is to say, look, things are changing, and these are some things that are in addition to the protections that we've had in the past. So here you can see the resident uh, has a right to a safe, clean, comfortable, and home-like environment, including but not limited, limited to, excuse me, receiving treatment and supports for daily living safely. Safe, clean, comfortable, and home-like. Those aren't my words. Those are the federal requirements. Uh, and then it goes on. The facility must provide, again, a safe, clean, comfortable, home-like environment, allowing the resident to use his or her personal belongings to the extent possible. Uh, this includes ensuring that the resident can receive care and services safely and that the physical layout of the facility maximizes resident independence and does not pose a safety risk. Also, and this was added, and we've talked about this a lot in our advocacy, the facility, uh, facilities are now required to exercise what they're calling reasonable care for the protection of residents' property from loss or theft. Um, housekeeping and maintenance, maintenance services, excuse me, necessary to maintain a sanitary, orderly, and comfortable interior, clean bed and bath linens, private closet space for each resident, that's new also, and I think that really may not mean an awful lot uh, in the scheme of things, but I think it really speaks to that this is resident-centered, 
that we're thinking of this place as a resident's home because that's what it is. Uh, and then these are, I think, also really important. Adequate and comfortable lighting levels in all areas. Comfortable and safe temperature levels. And we've seen this issue last summer. It got very hot in some of the nursing homes in our area. Um, dangerously hot. Um, and then for, there has to be, um, um, which one called the facilities responsible, excuse me, for the maintenance of comfortable sound levels. And I was just talking to a researcher at uh, NYU who's doing some work on this, and, and it is so important. It's not, uh, as she mentioned, it's not just a matter of being able to hear or not hear. It's really a matter of being able to participate in conversations, be a part of, of your world and the world around you. So each one of these things is really, really important. And I think I am so glad to see that they focus on this. We're going to move on now to resident and family councils. And I didn't mention before, but I include in brackets the Code of Federal Regulations, the CFR there. Just for um, your reference, as I will tell people when, when I do a presentation in person, I am uh, bald. So, you know, I, I tell, you know, families and uh, ombudsmen, you don't have to just say you know, that some bald guy came in and spoke to me about this six months ago. And this is the rules that you can actually look it up if you need to. It's not something I'm making up. This is something that, that really exists. And again, no need to worry about memorizing. No need to worry about remembering. Um, we are going to provide all, all kinds of tools for you on the website, including fact sheets, individual fact sheets for each one of these standards. Again, the orange type here continues to be the new regulatory language. So the resident has a right to organize and participate in resident groups, resident councils in the facility. Here are some, I think, some really important parameters for this, because this is a challenge that we've seen for residents, for family members, and for the ombudsman who work with them year after year after year. So here, what we're saying now is the facility must provide a resident or family group, if one exists, with private space and take reasonable steps with the approval of the group to make residents and family members aware of upcoming meetings in a timely manner. So the facility has to help the resident council, the family council, get the word out, essentially, in a way that is meaningful. Don't post a notice behind the nurse's desk, or don't only do that. Put it in elevators, put it in hallways, put it by the dining room, put it, if there's a TV room or a social room, et cetera, put it in all those places, distribute it, uh, copies to residents, and certainly don't interfere with the resident or family group or the ombudsman helping, um, helping the community distribute this information. So that, I think, is really important. Staff, visitors, or other guests may attend resident group or family group meetings only at the respective group's invitation. Now, a big issue that we've seen, again, over the years is that the resident council and the family council, they have a right to operate privately. They may want to talk about things outside of the earshot of the facility, they may want to come up with strategy or come up with priorities, et cetera, on their own. It is their absolute right to do that under federal law. Here also, the facility must provide a designated staff person who is approved by the resident or family group and the facility and who is responsible for providing assistance and responding to written requests that result from group meetings. A lot of the family councils that I've spoken to over the years and, and which I've worked with, they, they a big complaint 
quite often is that they don't get a response, that they will spend time, you know, talking about a problem. They'll spend time talking about issues that they're seeing with their loved ones or in their own lives, um, whether they're a family or resident council, and then nothing happens. The new regulations say something has got to happen. They don't have to do what you want necessarily. The facility is not, is not required to do what you recommend as a family council or resident council, but they are now mandated to respond to you in a meaningful way. And I think that is huge. Uh, I really do. And I hope that's something that, that we can work on more. And I'd be happy, by the way, as an aside, to provide any kind of technical assistance that I can, you know, going forward with families uh, and residents and family and resident councils to see that happen. Because I, I think it's really important. By the way, uh, we did a project last year with family councils in two family councils in New York City and the Alliance of New York Family Councils. And one reason, one way we were able to get support for that is because there's studies that have shown that a facility that has a family council cares better for all residents in the facility, whether or not they have a family member on the family council. Uh, and certainly having a resident council also makes a big difference. So uh, something that I want to do personally is to help support your work as much as I can. So here the facility must consider the views of the resident family group and act promptly. See all the new language, it's all again in orange. Act promptly upon the grievances and recommendations of such groups concerning issues of resident care and life in the facility. The facility must be able to demonstrate their response and the rationale for such response. So they just can't say, we didn't, we just didn't feel like doing it, essentially. They have to give a rationale if they don't do it. Um, that to me, again, is, these are some really major improvements to the standards. Now, as I noted before, this should not be construed. This is, again, this is all the regulatory language right from the federal government. This should not be construed to mean that the facility must implement, as recommended, every request of the resident or family group. So they don't have to do it, but they have to respond to you in a way that is really meaningful. Now, this is new. Also, the resident has a right to participate in the family groups. And I've seen that in some family groups, but not all of them. Um, but the resident has a right to participate in the family group, and the resident has a right to have family members or other representatives of the resident meet in the facility with families or other resident representatives of other residents in the facility. So that's a mouthful, but essentially what that's saying is that uh, if I'm a resident, I have a right to have my family member there. If my family member is my friend, he or she has the right to be there also. I could have, a, I could have someone, I could have a good friend. I may not have family nearby or family that I want to represent me uh, or family that I think is particularly helpful. Uh, but I could have a friend there. That friend or the other person is, they can represent me. They have all the rights. They can't be shut out um, by the facility. So I think that is really important, too, for a lot of people. We're going to move on now to grievances. And this is probably um, the largest part of the program. But again, um, we do have the fact sheets that we'll be distributing. If you want to be on the list for them, please email sarah at ltccc.org. Uh, we'll spell everything out at the end, but we're happy to share them and we're going to post them on our website. 
So this, I think also they added some really good language here uh, because too often people complain or sometimes people are afraid to complain or they complain and they feel like nothing ever happened, nothing ever, it doesn't make a difference. And that's, I think, one of the most frustrating things I have personally heard from residents and from families. Why should I say anything? It doesn't make a difference. So I think what we have here in the new regulations, and we'll talk about it, is ways in which it will hopefully make a difference uh, in individual lives and as a whole. So the resident has the right to voice grievances to the facility or other agency or entity that hears grievances without discrimination or reprisal and without fear of discrimination or reprisal. Such grievances include those with respect to care and treatment which has been furnished as well that has not, that which has not been furnished, excuse me, the behavior of staff or other residents or any other concerns that they have regarding their stay in the residence, the facility. The resident has the right to and the facility must make prompt efforts to resolve grievances. The facility must make information on how to file a grievance or complaint available to the resident. So again, the facility must do this. This has to be out there readily available to the residents and to the families that they, they have the ability to file a grievance without fear of reprisal or discrimination. That has to all be clear. The facility must establish a grievance policy to ensure the prompt resolution of all grievances regarding the resident's rights. Upon request, the provider must give a copy of the grievance policy to the resident. So you have a right to ask for one as well. Uh, it can't be that it came in with your when you entered the facility and you lost it. Well, that's too bad. No, you can ask for it again. Family member can ask for it again. The ombudsman can help the resident or the family procure one as well. So here are some requirements for the nursing home grievance policy. It must, the grievance policy must include notifying the resident individually or through postings in prominent locations throughout the facility of the right to file grievances orally meaning, you know, spoken or in writing. Grievances can be filed anonymously. The contact information of the grievance official with whom a grievance can be filed, that is the nursing home's grievance official. And that is something that's new in the regulations that nursing homes now have to have a grievance official. Um, the person's name, their mail and email address, and their phone number. They have, the policy has to include a reasonable expected time frame for the facility to review the grievance. It has to include the right to obtain a written decision regarding his or her grievance. So the resident, the family member now has the right to obtain a written decision regarding his grievance. I think that's also one of these points that is just major. Um, and then also the grievance policy from the facility must include the contact information of independent entities with whom grievances may be filed. The state survey agency, Department of Health, the quality improvement organization, the long-term care Amazon program, uh, Medicaid floor control unit, etc. And here we get to the grievance official. The facility has to, has to assign and identify a grievance official, and that person is responsible for overseeing the grievance process, receiving grievances, tracking grievances, 
throughout from the beginning, from the time they get them to their conclusion. So there's always someone that you can go to find out, hey, I submitted a, you know, I, I was, you know, upset about something last, you know, last week. Uh, I had a problem with something with my care or uh, in my room last week. What is going on with that? That person, you now have a point person at the facility that is responsible for tracking and giving you that information. That person is responsible for leading any necessary investigations on behalf of the facility. They're responsible for maintaining the confidentiality of all information associated with grievances, including the identity of the resident if the grievance was submitted anonymously. They're responsible for issuing the written grievance decision if the resident wants one, and for coordinating with state and federal agencies as necessary. For instance, if it's a abuse, you know, something that's criminal in nature, et cetera, that they are responsible for, for coordinating with the state and federal agencies. The official is that um, is responsible for taking immediate action to prevent further potential violations of any resident right while the alleged violation is being investigated, and for immediately reporting all alleged violations involving neglect, abuse, including injuries of unknown source and or misappropriation of resident property by anyone furnishing services on behalf of the provider, so any caregiver, or anyone who comes in, even a temporary person, et cetera, to the administrative provider and as required by law, uh, ensuring that all, re oh, excuse me, sorry about that. I think I, I ended it, but as required by law to the, uh, as I mentioned above, to the appropriate agencies. So that again is really, really important. As you can see, it's all orange. It's all new. Um, and so, and again, no need to memorize because we are putting this all in a fact sheet for you that you can easily look up on our website, print out when you want it. Uh, again, I am really happy. You don't have to put our name on it. You could copy and paste it onto something else. We really want people to know that they have these rights. I mean, to me, the grievance official and all the responsibilities that are part of, of and parcel of being the grievance official for the facility is, I think, going to be a huge benefit for the resident. But to get back, and the reason why I wanted to spend some time today going over what's going on with the changes is because facilities may not all be aware of this. They may not be hearing about it. They may not identify it as an important standard for them. But for us, it's a very important standard. So now you know that you have this right, uh, and you'll be, you know, we want to support you in any way that we can to make sure that you have, you know, that that right is implemented for you. And here are some requirements for the written grievance decision. So again, remember that the resident has the right to request a decision in writing. And the federal government, now CMS, has set forth these requirements for what has to be in that decision. It has to include the date the grievance was received, a summary statement of what the resident's grievance was, the steps the officer and the facility took to investigate that grievance, a summary of the pertinent findings or conclusions regarding what the resident raised, the resident's concerns, a statement as to whether or not the grievance was confirmed, any corrective action taken or to be taken by the facility as a result of the grievance, and then the date the written decision was issued. So really from 
start to finish here, you now have a written record. You're entitled to a written record. This is such a big change from my point of view. I think that this will really help us all and especially help residents and families know, and ombudsmen, excuse me, know what is going on. You know, when there's a complaint, when there's a problem, what's happened to it? Where is it? Um, and what can I expect to happen? Next, taking appropriate corrective action in accordance with state law if the alleged violation of the resident's rights is confirmed by the facility or if an outside entity having jurisdiction, such as the survey agency, local law enforcement, the Medicaid Fort Control Unit, etc., confirms a violation for any of these residents' rights that are within its area of responsibility. And then lastly, and this is important as well, the facility is required to maintain evidence demonstrating the results of all grievances for a period of no less than three years from the issuance of the grievance decision. So we have records now. We have information that is out there and that is accessible. One more point before we move on. I think it's also important in respect to both our individual advocacy and our more systems advocacy that now we know that in these cases, nursing homes have clearly put on notice when there is an issue. And hopefully they, this will give you know, more incentive to resolve those issues. But now we know it's not, it may not be the first one who complained about this, but something has got to happen. There's got to be some response. Um, and this is a way to really, that I think it really moves it forward a way that's concrete, that can help us at least overcome. Because half the time, you know, with, you know, with the residents and families and ombudsmen that I talk to, they don't even feel that they've been hurt. And that adds literally adds insult to injury. So here you will have a way to know that you've been heard and you'll have a way to know that something happened as a result. You may not get what you want. I don't know. Don't get me wrong. The facility is not required to do everything that the resident wants, do everything that a family council or a resident council wants it to do, but it has to respond now in a way that is meaningful and that gets at what the issue that was raised, um, what that was. So here, um, I'm just going to recap for each of the three things, some of the highlights. And as I mentioned a number of times now, we will also have you know, the fact sheets, which are individual for each one of these, and which will be um, available to you in the, um, in the future on our website. So in terms of a safe environment, nursing home residents are entitled to a safe, clean and comfortable environment. That is the regulation. Comfortable temperatures, comfortable sound. Residents' property now has, the facility has to take steps to make sure that, that it's protected, reasonable protections from loss or theft. Um, what that means, by the way, we're still working out, to be, to be quite honest. That's where, the, you know, I mentioned before that there are guidelines for each regulation. Those guidelines are being developed now. We've been talking to CMS about them, what that, what that means, what does a facility have to do uh, to ensure. But a facility now has an active duty to protect people's property, and I think that in itself is a big difference. Um, an environment, any environment in the facility that is frequented by residents, and this is from the, the federal language, included 
including but not limited to the residents' rooms, bathrooms, hallways, dining areas, the lobby, outdoor patios, therapy areas, and activity areas. That ha they all have to be safe. And I see, you know, I, I see deficiency statements uh, where facilities were cited because they had the door was ajar in the in a floor where residents they didn't think went. But now it's clear that any public area, there's a responsibility to ensure that it's safe. And then what I like here, the last point, is home-like. Facility and the staff both have to take steps to de-emphasize the institutional nature of the facility, of the nursing home, and allow the resident to use personal belongings that support home-like environment. That is something that we've been moving towards for many years, making facilities more home-like. We call culture change uh, and other things. But this is a way to say, you know what, this is really sending the message that, again, that this is a resident's home and that the resident has the right to have his or her surroundings reflect that as much as possible. Recap for family and resident councils. I put it into two different parts here because I thought that would be more useful. Um, so residents have the right to form and participate in resident and family councils. The facility must provide space and privacy for the councils to meet. Facility staff or other guests can only attend a meeting at the council's request. The facility must designate a staff person who is approved by the council who will be responsible for responding to written requests from the council. So again, and the approved by the council, I know it's been a big issue for a lot of people. So the facility has a right to designate who they want to. I mean, the, the council can't just choose and insist that it be a certain person, but that person, whoever the facility chooses, has to be approved by the council. So it's got to be mutual here. And then in the blue box to the right, I put requirements for facilities when responding to council concerns, because I thought that was kind of a standalone uh, an important message to, to give. Facility must consider issues raised by the council and attempt to accommodate them to the extent practicable. The facility must act promptly upon complaints and recommendations, and they must be able to demonstrate both its response to concerns raised and the rationale for that response. And again, that doesn't mean, I just wanted to be clear, doesn't mean that the facilities are required to do everything that the council wants but they do have to respond, and they do have to have a rationale for that response. Grievances. So the residents have the right to voice grievances to the facility, the long-term care ombudsman, the state agency, excuse me, or any other agency that hears grievances. Facilities are prohibited from retaliating or discriminating against residents from making a complaint. The facility must designate a grievance official with whom complaints can be filed, including complaints that are filed anonymously. Facilities must establish a grievance policy and clearly notify residents about it. The expectation is that a facility has a system in place to ensure prompt attention to and resolution of grievances. That I included here, you can see in the blue kind of bubble, requirements for a nursing home's grievance policy. Time frame it has to be reasonable. There has to be, excuse me, a reasonable expected time frame for completing the review of the grievance. Written decision. Resident has a right to, to ask for and receive a written decision regarding his or her grievance. 
immediate action as necessary to prevent further potential violations of any resident right. Immediate reporting. The facility is required to immediately report all alleged violations involving neglect, abuse, including injuries of unknown source and or misappropriation of resident property by anyone furnishing services and any caregiver, anyone there working on behalf of the provider, to the administrator, and as required by law to, you know, as required by state law, because state law can have other requirements. And again, as I mentioned a couple of times, we do have fact sheets on this. So here are two of them. We have the fact sheet on the resident and family council and the fact sheet on the safe environment. It's only the first page of, of either one, but they're, uh, all our fact sheets tend to be um, two-page, two-sided, and um, they'll be available on our website. And I'm going to open up now for questions or comments. So please press star six uh, if you'd like to open your line for a question or a comment. I'm very interested. I appreciate hearing from you. Um, Hello. Uh, may I ask Hello. a question? Yes. Hello? Yes. Uh, Diana. Oh, I, I, uh, which one of us is first? I don't know. Uh, the, the gentleman's first. I'm sorry. And, uh, who's first? <laughs> uh, there's, there's a gentleman who started, and then, and then, and then um, I, I don't have your name, ma'am, but um, then you, you go second, please. Okay, this is Charles. Hi. Um, I had a question about the new addition that residents have the right to participate in family groups. The wording is a bit ambiguous there. Does that mean that residents have a right to attend the family council? Yes. Okay, that's going to create a big headache for a lot of family councils. Um, yes, I, you know, I, it's something that I've been, so what Charles is, is asking is that, you know, we have, you know, many facilities have both resident and family councils. Sometimes they only have one. And I've noticed that, you know, mostly it's just the family members, but occasionally they, there are residents that, that do attend. Um, and. So Charles is asking, is that is that what the requirement is saying? And the requirement is saying that the uh, residents in the facility have a right to attend. Yeah, I thought that was interesting also. And I, um, it'll be interesting to see, and I think it will be challenging for, for families and the ombudsman who work with families and the family councils uh, to make sure that the um, uh, that the that the council is is effective. And the reason why yeah. I say this, I mean, you know, everything we talk about, and there certainly will be a lot of issues, and this is something that we can all talk about again, or you can reach out to me on the side, Richard at ltccc.org. In the future, for anyone who has any any uh, questions or challenges that they want help with, but I would say that you know, we, we we talk, and I think what CMS was doing was saying we're really focused on the resident, and the resident is the nexus of everything. Uh, to me, uh, they, you know, there could be potential problems with that, and one of them being is that for a lot of, you know, most residents have some level of dementia, and, and, and a large portion of residents have um, significant dementia, and they are quite often, if they're represented at all, it's by family members. So yeah, if, you have, if you don't have a place for them to, to, to speak and to be heard, um, then that um, that could be a problem for those family members to be. Well, able to family members also 
Family members also need a place where they can speak freely and privately, not in the presence of either their or other family members' residents. So if a family council wants to invite a resident, that's one thing. But making it an obligation is a really bad idea, and it is going to undermine the effectiveness of some family councils. Um, yes, I, I, I agree with you. I mean, I think that's something... It is, it is what it is. As CMS said to us when we were commenting uh, with, yeah. and talking to them about some of the guidelines for this, and we'll see what the guidelines say, but they will follow what the regulations say, and that is what the regulations say, um, which is why, you know, I, I do not just, you know, and certainly for you, Charles, but, but for anyone else, if there are family councils that are running, you know, into, prob into problems down the road or just thinking about how can they be more effective if, residents join them, um, let me know, because I would like to, you know, try to help you as much as I can. Uh, and this could also be something that the Alliance of Family Councils, you know, may want to address if it becomes necessary. I mean, a lot of times the residents don't really want to be part of the family, family council, but sometimes they do. Right, but making it an obligation on the family council is a problem. Is there, is there any avenue for comment? Um, no, I mean, no, because the regulations, um, you know, the regulatory, the proposed regulations came out in 2015, and then we all had time for comment. I don't remember what the comments were, to be honest, about yeah. this, but I um, I definitely, you know, I, I do see that it's a um, maybe not a perfect solution. But I, I would suggest it's something that we think about, and and again, I, I would be happy to, you know, not necessarily in a webinar unless people wanted that, but uh, you know, offline or, or or in a different discussion, talk about that as those issues are raised, you know, where they come up. Thank you. Sure. Okay. Uh, Let's I'm scared. I'm Hi. Hi. Um, I am an embryonic ombudsman, but I'm not a virgin in the field. I spent 25 years of my life working in long-term care, and the last four years I've been a patient in rehab five times. So, you know, it's not all news to me. Uh, but I am a uh, Luddite and did not succeed in getting online on my computer, which is why I'm on a cell phone. However, I did attempt to get the printed material in advance, and the address that was given online was, I kept being told, it was an incorrect URL, so I never did get any material. Is there any way we can fix that? Uh, yeah, well, the, the, we have the same link that goes out for every single program. So I would um, maybe check where you're putting in with the URL. And if you're having trouble, if I may volunteer, um, you can email Sarah, S-A-R-A, at ltccc.org. Now, the materials are, will be up on our website, including recording of this program, um, I would say, you know, within the next week. Okay. And, um, and I'll, be able to get it. I'll be able to get it on YouTube. Yes, yeah, right on the front page of our website. Now we're just we're just building the you know, rebuilding the website, so and and modernizing it. So now we have a learning center, and we have a you know an area for family and and residents and ombudsman advocacy. Um, and right on the front page, there is a link to our YouTube and our Facebook page. So okay, um, yeah, it'll all be there. Yeah, sorry about, about sorry about the problem. The, the problem with URL, I had it on several different computers at several different times, so it, 
Yeah, I, I, I'm sorry about that because the other people have been on, and as I say, it's the same one we use um, that we that we use for every single program. That's why I try to make it easy for people. Okay. Oh, Sarah, Sarah said that the handouts will be sent out to those who requested them after the webinar, and they're on the website now. Okay. She's close to that. Uh, a brief else, question here. I'm sorry. A brief question here. Oh yes, please. Yeah. Uh, this is pretty straightforward with respect to the surrogate decision making. In our case, we deal with lay guardians, and yes, that, so they pre we tell them to present their uh, legal documents, the commission, their appointment order. But it, does the regulations or the law have a specific citation? indicating that they have to allow such people make the decisions and intervene, or do we continue to rely on the appointment order itself? Well, I, I, I don't want to, to, to mysteer you. I'm not an expert on, on surrogacy or, um, or, or any of those issues, you know, the legal issues around um, someone making legal, um, you know, legal decisions, excuse me, for the resident. So I would suggest uh, talking to a, to a legal aid organization about that. No, no, no. I know the answer. I'm sorry. Okay. I think I oh. didn't make myself clear. Right. Okay, the sorry. daughter is what tells them what they can do or not. But does this law have a provision specifically saying guardians or appointed people have a right for decision making so that they can go and cite that to them and make things clearer? You see what I mean? Is there right. a clear citation indicating that somebody can take the stand in the place of the resident to make decisions in particular circumstances, other um, than the order and judgment that we know they can rely on? Um, Was it put for them to have a citation in the nursing home law that says, you, here it is, you see? Right. Well, the, the language that I gave you, but I'm not sure I have, I have a, a, a perfect answer for this, but the language that I gave you before came from the regulations, and it does say, and we put it, we put the actual regulatory language, at least we excerpt it in the handouts as well, and I think they also have a, um, well, they definitely have the, the, the code, so you could read the code itself for further details. But okay. the, uh, the person, the, the resident can assign this to someone else, you know, it can be, uh, it doesn't have to be formal, um, and then it also could be, you know, in a formal situation where the family member or someone else is assigned to represent the resident, and that person takes the place of the resident as long as you know, he or she is acting in their best interest. Okay. And that is in the regulation. There is that kind of language uh, for New York State in the Family Health Care Decisions Act. Ah, that's good. That's good, Charles. Thank you. Yeah, guardian is at the top of the list. Right, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But that's for end of life. Yeah, and many states have that oh. as well. Yeah, that's for end of life only. I have a question well, about Well, no, not for end of family. life only, but for when, when a health care proxy is, is needed. It doesn't okay. have to be end of life. Oh, yeah, it definitely doesn't have to be end of life. Sorry about that. I missed okay. There was someone else who, was, who started to ask a question? I have a couple of questions. Okay, Hi. I have two questions. Uh, one is, hello? Hi, I can hear you. Hello? Hi, this is Richard, I can hear you. Okay, I have two questions. I'm, I'm an ombudsman, officially almost 20 years, unofficially close to 40. I'm an advocate in the community in Lower Hudson Valley. 
First question, how long is there a look back for grievances? What was a given grievance, you know, having its start date? But how long is it, uh, can it be brought up after the event? Well, you could mean after the event and after the causation of the grievance? Right, yes. Well, I mean, you is could... Is there a time frame? There is, there's no time frame, but I would think as with anything, just practically speaking, that the sooner the better, and, you know, it depends upon what kind of grievance it is, but, you know, if things get stale or people no longer work there or, you know, say if it was a allegation of physical abuse and the, there's no longer a bruise or something else than that, right, the longer, right, longer yeah. you take, yeah, but there's no, there's, no set, there's no set time frame in which you have to, um, you know, file the complaint. Right. Now, I, I, there was an incident about a year and a half ago in my, one of my nursing homes. I'm an ombudsman, too. And um, there was serious, serious danger to a resident and to the staff as a whole. Uh, the police were called because I called the police. The staff was not prepared to handle it. They should have had a safety precaution in place and did not. And uh, it was a horrendous situation. I reported it. Um, I discussed it with, you know, my, my ombudsman uh, director and all. Uh, we met with the uh, facility, uh, the, the director, the nurse, uh, you know, the, the director of nursing, et cetera, uh, several times, and nothing was done to change the danger of what still exists, and that's a year and a half ago. Well, if so it, I, I want to resubmit, a, you know, agreements about it because I, I see the potential of this happening again with situations. Well, Second if, question. If, if this is Second question. Ma'am, let me just answer. If the situation is still existing, then it's a current complaint. And But if it's something that no longer exists, then it's not going to be a current complaint anymore. You can't – I don't think you can complain now about a um, – about a situation that happened a year, year and a half ago, but doesn't exist any longer. That, that's uh, right, that immediate situation, but nothing was done to remedy the problems, and there are continuing existing problems, similar, okay. but not quite well, yeah. as dangerous. And we're getting nowhere with, with, with what happened. The thing that made me really disgusted is when the state did its annual investigation, several months later, and they were informed about what went on, and I discussed it with them during their, um, you know, when they're there for their, for their uh, investigation. Prior to, we, I met individually uh, with the team leader, and prior to the exit meeting, again, reiterated these issues, and that nursing home got an absolutely best rating, one of the, the highest rating you could get. And I sat there as I quietly, infuriated as the exit meeting took place. And everybody was high-fiving themselves. It was disgusting. And nothing has changed. Well, that's, that's thank, you, thank, you, thank, you, thank you for sharing that. Um, did you say you had a second question? The second question is, what is a reasonable time frame for non-life-threatening issues? When you said that there should be a response, you know, uh, a reasonable time frame. I, I, well, that is a very good question, and I think that we'll, um, we'll see what the guidance comes out. Now, 
as I mentioned at the start, the regulations are have been released as of uh, October of last year, and they're being implemented starting in November of 2016. The guidelines have not come out yet, so the guidelines are expected okay. out by November of this year, and we'll see, you know, what the guidelines are around that. But I think it's going to be, you know, somewhat loose. I mean, it has to be because every every situation is different. But I I hope that there'll be um, again, good guidelines so that people will have an idea of uh, of how you know what they can expect. Right, right. The the standard answers you get is when a grievance is brought to them uh, is uh, I'll I'll uh, look into it. Right. Well, that, that, that's exactly why I wanted to focus on it today because I think that right. That I'll look be- into it. I'm working on it. Uh, we have to figure out a plan. And at that point, I, after, you know, hearing this, week, you know, a couple of weeks each time, I said, well, I have an idea. I said, I have a plan. And if you haven't come up with one, perhaps we should sit down and discuss my plan. Okay. Um, does anyone else have any questions? Yes, I have a simpler question. Um, yes. who, who is considered family um, for someone who doesn't have any physical family? There are a group of us who act as her family, um, and the nursing home seems to only want to talk to the person who has the health proxy, but we're concerned about uh, a missing personal item, uh, glasses, um, and they don't seem to, to talk to the rest of us. Does, does it have to be the health care proxy, or can it be other people? It could be other people. So what the, what the regulation says, and, and um, this is in the language that we, that we talked about, is that the resident could have someone else representing them. It does not have to be family. It could be a friend. Um, so, so it's very important. As long as that, you know, that person is acting on behalf of the resident with the resident's consent, then that's fine. Okay, so we don't have to have sure. any special designation no. to, to, um, ask about missing property. Okay, thank you. Sure. Good afternoon. Hi. I'm calling, uh, and my question is this. It's wrong. Things are missing for my mother, and they have been missing for quite some time. And at the start, I was told I needed to have uh, a history or detailed uh, listing of the things that were missing. There, there are other things that I am of great concern. I'm a biological daughter, plus I have health care proxy. But things that I see go on, and they need to be addressed before they get worse. To make uh, one point is this. She has a bruise on her left, on her right forearm. If I don't ask questions, these things are not addressed because staff is very busy and at times I think they're understaffed. And I could give you numerous um, occasions of um, things that are of great concern to me. I can't get a CCP meeting. Oh, ma'am, 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 I don't mean to cut you off. I, I, I'm really 
uh, this is Richard. I'm really sorry. I mean, you know, to hear about this, but I I need to confine our discussion here to the program because we have 50 other people on. So what I would recommend, I don't, I'm, I'm sorry to, to um, but I just want to be fair to others as well, ma'am. Um, but I would suggest speaking to the long-term care ombudsman uh, okay. in your facility or in your community, you know, um, in your area. Every area has a long-term care ombudsman. Um, okay. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, 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 I'm really sorry. I know how difficult it is. May I ask you this, the mailing address for the materials that you were discussing, especially since I don't have access to um, the uh, email or whatever. Sure. I don't have access to that. And I'd like to have the uh, um, mailing address so that I could get these materials, please. Sure. So our mailing address for anyone who wants, who doesn't have Internet access, it's uh, LTCCC, 1 Penn Plaza, P-E-N-N, -N, uh, Suite 6252. And then the zip code, Sarah, is 10119. Is that right? It's New York, New York, 10119. Sarah, are you still there? I'm still here. Okay, good. Now, I, I thought my assistant Sarah was, was on the phone. I, 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 sorry about that. I get, the, the numbers are a little mixed up sometimes. There's 10119, One Penn Plaza, Suite 6252, New York, New York, 10119. Okay, thank you very much. Yeah, sorry about that, ma'am. Uh, anyone else with questions? Um, about the grievance. Uh, yes. Uh, I, I'm glad to know that there is a response deadline for that because when you speak to a person about a grievance or making a notation at the center, it's not done. And that has happened way too often, and I think it should stop. But with what was shared today, I find out that there is an avenue for help. Yes. And I thank you. Oh, thank you very much. Yes, and, uh, um, and good luck to you, ma'am. I'm sorry that, that I couldn't help you further. Just, thank you. Um, someone had asked, uh, had mentioned online on the message board that they um, disagreed about a family council. Uh, I, I just want to be clear, uh, this was Cindy. I disagree. Family council is not the same as a family support group, and that's true. So we're talking about family councils here. We're not talking about a family support group, although quite often a family council does provide support to the you know family members and does kind of function in that way as well. But a we're talking about the resident and family councils here. Uh, lastly, our next program is June twentieth at one p.m. And we're going to be talking about involuntary transfer and discharge. This is a growing issue that we're seeing, uh, unfortunately, all over the place, that people are being forced out of their nursing homes or told the nursing homes are only for short-term care. Uh, so there's a lot of good uh, new standards and protections against involuntary transfer and discharge. I was very happy to see in the new regs, so I look forward to sharing them. Uh, thank you all very much for those of you who are left on the line for joining us today. I know we went, my goodness, we went about 15 minutes over. 
again, as Sarah mentioned, there, this is on our website, nursinghome411.org. Uh, I gave our mailing address for those of you who don't have email. Uh, we have a Facebook page, a Twitter page, and, uh, of course, our website. I also wanted to mention people, that, uh, especially those of you who are in New York, uh, we encourage family members to connect with the Alliance of New York Family Council. The website is www.a, n is in Nancy, y is in yes, f is in Frank, c is in Carol, .org. Or you can email info at anyfc.org. So thank you all very, very much. I really appreciate it. I hope it's useful. Um, feel free to send me a message personally, Richard at L. T as in Tom, ccc.org. If you have any questions or comments, I um, would be happy to respond to them. You'll have a very nice day. Thank you very much. Bye-bye now.